0: that's join M-I-D-I, dot com.
1: Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Tonight I want to welcome back to the show, Corey Hughes. He was on last time going under the name Mr. X. He's a former police officer investigating everything from 9-11 and the JFK assassination to government psychological warfare campaigns. Corey, welcome back. How are you doing tonight?
2: Good. I appreciate you having me back on.
1: Well, I appreciate you coming back on. Uh, last time you shared some amazing Information. It was a great presentation uh, about the assassination of JFK. You basically broke down the who, what, when, where, why, and how. Um, It was fascinating, and there's a link in the description. I highly recommend that everybody go watch that before they watch this one tonight, because tonight we're going to be picking up with some newly uncovered uh, information that you have found, Um, and it's going to pick up where you left off. But uh, first, I don't know if you would be able to give us like a brief recap of your previous presentation and where you left off on that one.
2: Sure. Uh, So basically, uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated under the order of David Ben-Gurion of Israel. Uh, Fundamentally, the assassination was over. Um, two things, primarily uh, the nuclear activity at the site at Damona in Israel and Israel's refusing to uh, register their lobbying organizations under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, otherwise known as FARA. Um, when you look at each of the components of the assassination and a lot of the clues that were left behind, Um, you get a lot of conflicting information. And you have some signs that point to the mob. You have some signs that point to the CIA. um, You have some signs that point to um, the Mossad. But really, when you come to understand the relationship between Israel, the Israeli government at the time, the Mossad, uh, and the CIA, and the United States Mafia, Uh, you really come to understand that this is one big organization. There are different branches of the same tree. Um, So you have post-World War II, the deal that Dulles cut with uh, Reinhard Galen. And Reinhard Galen was Adolf Hitler's spymaster. He was the head of the German army. Uh, And basically what he did was he laid the foundation for NATO and the organization of intelligence agencies that popped up in the late 1940s. Uh, Basically the modern security state uh, and its structure, uh, we owe to Reinhard Galen, um, who was a, he says he was never a member of the Nazi party, but they were all Nazis over there. So uh, there's a couple factors, a couple things I wanna talk about just to kind of emphasize this relationship. Uh, So you have, Uh, We'll get the easy ones out of the way quick. You have James Angleton. Angleton is uh, uh, one of the top guys in the OSS, one of the top guys in the CIA. And he um, was a diehard Zionist. Um, Now, the whole Zionist conversation could take up 10 shows, like for real. Uh, It's very deep. um, And I don't understand a lot of the motivations behind a lot of these non-Jewish Zionists. But Angleton was a Zionist. Every decision he ever made was more in favor of Israel than it was for the United States. Um, And that kind of continues to this very day um, with our intelligence communities. The relationship between Israel and the CIA, they're basically the same organization. Um, Now people are like, well, how does the mafia fit into that? Well, that's pretty easy. Uh, Most people, when they think of organized crime, they think of the mafia, they think of Sicilians, right? The godfather. Um, However, In 1931, with the murder of Sal Maranzano by uh, Lucky Luciano and by Meyer Lansky, um, if you dig into that history, you really come to realize that um, post-1931, what they used to call the Jewish mafia was the mafia. Meyer Lansky took over all operations of the United States mafia post-1931. And by 1946, 1946 was the first time that Israeli representatives had come to or pre-Israeli representatives of the Haganah uh, had come to the United States uh, specifically to meet with uh, Lucky Luciano and Mickey Cohen and Meyer Lansky uh, because they were all Jewish, right? Um, They were non-religious Jews, right? And that's a big uh, that's, a, that's a really big hurdle for a lot of people to overcome is the understanding that the origins of Zionism and the origins of Israel, all these guys are anti-Semitic, non-religious Jews, right? They have nothing to do with the religion. And basically between the late 1800s and the, um, I'd say, 1930s, 1940s, um, by the end of World War II, the Zionists had completely hijacked um, the religion of Judaism from the Orthodox Jews. Uh, so, when what could the image of, in people's minds that they have of Jews today um, is not what it was, right? Because when they think of Jews, they think of Israel. But all those founders of Israel and everyone who pushed for the Jewish state—they were deeply um, anti-religious. Um, and so, Zionism is really a um, non-religious ethnic political brand of Judaism that has wreaked havoc on the world for the last hundred plus years. Uh, But you have the first meetings in 1946 between the Haganah and uh, Mickey Cohen and Meyer Lansky. And it was at that point that the United States mafia under Meyer Lansky pretty much committed to a relationship with Israel. um, And they assisted them in uh, what was called the Sonnenberg Institute, which was uh, set up by David Ben-Gurion in 1945. It was an illegal armed smuggling ring that sought to take all the World War II surplus and ship it to uh, Palestine so they could engage in acts of terrorism and basically uh, uh, to arm their, uh, at the time, what were just terrorist groups, the Ergun, the Stern Gang, the Haganah. They didn't really organize and form until 1948 uh, as the IDF. Um, but all the weapons that they had, all the post-World War II surplus, was all stolen from us. Uh, and it was done with the help of a couple hundred Jewish Americans who were basically traitors to the United States um, in order to help Israel come about, right? So uh, much of the money that went to supporting Israel came from Meyer Lansky and his and his mafia. Um, they had set up, God, I don't remember what year this was, but it must have been late 40s or 46, 47. Uh, Meyer Lansky connected with um, a bank called BCI. It was the Bank de Credit Internationale. Now that's different from BCCI, which was George Bush's money laundering bank in the 70s. But BCI was established by a guy named uh, Tibor Rosenbaum and another guy who's extremely relevant today, uh, Edgar Bronfman. Now, Edgar Bronfman and Tibor Rosenbaum founded BCI. It was the primary bank that Israel used for its international dealings uh, post-1948 when they were established. But really, it was established to uh, launder money and to fund these Israeli operations that were going on. And so the relationship between Meyer Lansky and Edgar Bronfman and Tibor Rosenbaum, that's kind of like the linchpin in the financial dealings between Meyer Lansky's mob and the nation of Israel. Um, Ben Gurion and many of these early uh, leaders of Israel directly credit uh, Meyer Lansky with assisting in its uh, formation, because if they didn't have Meyer Lansky's thumbs up to be running guns and running drugs and doing all this stuff in the U S then they probably wouldn't have gotten anywhere as far as um, recruiting Americans or uh, acquiring the weapons that they were trying to acquire and they probably wouldn't have gotten very far. So the relationship with Meyer Lansky and the mob is, is crucial to understanding uh, the Kennedy, rela- the Kennedy assassination, because like I said, if this is one organization you're talking about, you're talking about uh, a three headed monster between the CIA, Mossad and, and the mafia. So <clears throat> let me see, where do I want to take it from here? Um, well, let's uh, let's do well, this. But
1: uh, what before you do that, um, kind of give a reminder of the reason why he was assassinated. Because there's so much inf- misinformation about you know why he was assassinated, the possible reasoning behind it. But you had a, a good explanation and breakdown the last time.
2: Yeah. So the the biggest reason was that Kennedy was out to. Uh, he, he, he wanted disarmament of nukes around the world. Uh, you can watch a bunch of his speeches and you can clearly see that he saw the threat that nuclear weapons posed uh, to the planet. And he was cutting you know, back channel deals with Khrushchev trying to eliminate uh, testing for nukes, space testing for nukes. Um, and ultimately what he wanted to see was uh, nukes no longer part of the military equation for anyone. So at a time when he's looking for disarmament, you have Israel, who is, well, founded by criminals. It's a nation founded by terrorists. They um, were ramping up their attempts to uh, obtain nuclear materials and to build the bomb. Their motivation for building the bomb is much different from everyone else's. And uh, well, we're not going to talk about that today, but let's just say If ever Israel is on the verge of being wiped out, they are going to launch nukes to every country on the planet. They have over 200, maybe possibly even 300 nukes at this point, and they are targeted around the world because they're not going out alone. Uh, You can read some quotes by Ben Gurion and some of these other guys uh, in private conversations that have come out, Uh, but that's basically their intent, and that's why, at least in the modern era, it's so important that their nukes uh, be reined in Um, But you have, also at the same time, you have uh, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. I don't know if anyone knows anything about um, APAC and their lobby. It's the biggest lobby in the world, definitely the biggest lobby in America. You uh, cannot get through your inaugural um, congressional year or your initial training and orientation without having a direct meeting with APAC. They're that plugged into our system. And uh, they have been asked to register as foreign agents, actually demanded for many, many years, um, FAR came out in 38, I believe, and they started to, peti- they started to be petitioned to register in 48 um, as soon as they were formed. Because by 48, they had already infiltrated half of our government. They had all kinds of organizations set up all over the United States just waiting. Um, and you can look back at guys like Stephen Wise, who was a, quote, rabbi out of New York, um, who was part of the Jewish Agency and the World Zionist Congress? You see, they have these organizations: the uh, American Zionist Congress, the World Zionist Congress, the American Jewish Congress. They have these organizations in every freaking country there is, um, and basically they are lobbying organizations. And when their lobbying doesn't work, they turn to blackmail. Uh, that's where people like Jeffrey Epstein come into play. And uh, to loop it back around to um, to, to the mob, basically. Uh, Epstein had really become very rich because of a guy named Charles Bronfman, who was the brother of Edgar Bronfman, um, who founded the BCI Bank. Charles Bronfman has a daughter named Claire, and she was arrested last year in 2018 for funding the Nexium sex cult. Uh, So the Bronfmans, who got their start back really in the 20s, working with Arnold Arnold Rothstein, uh, basically they were funneling his... Um, they were part of the chain of his underground liquor smuggling operation during prohibition. Right. Um, So from there, they go on to open the Seagram's company, you know, Seagram seven, the the beverage company. And they, that's where their most of their legitimate money comes from today. But along the way, um, they have funded uh, or been part of various organizations that have been directly tied to human trafficking. Uh, The Nexium sex cult is just the most recent um, time that they have been connected to uh, one of these shady organizations. So um, you have the Bronfmans and Tibor Rosenbaum, who had founded the BCI Bank, which I said Israel had used, Meyer Lansky had used, and it's really these kind of shady dealings with um, not necessarily people who were. is Israelis, but people who were sympathetic uh, towards the cause of an Israeli state, uh, like guys like George Mandel Mantello. Um, he's the founder of the company Permindex. And Permindex is the ultimate proof of uh, all the connections between all the players here because Permindex was basically a Mossad front company. It was initially funded by a guy named Yehuda Asiya, um, and Yehuda Assia also funded uh, NUMAC, um, which basically is, NUMAC is the company that was in Pennsylvania and starting in 1957, they had opened uh, in Apollo, Pennsylvania and their entire stated goal was to um, manufacture enriched uranium to power American submarines, right? They sold it as a very patriotic thing. But between 1957 and... God, I want to say 1972 might have been a little sooner than that. Something around 600 pounds of enriched uranium had been uh, had disappeared from NUMEC and ended up where in Domona, right? So basically, you have the Israelis who stole their state; they hijacked an entire religion. Uh, they stole all the weapons that they had for their rebellions uh, from the United States, and then they stole the the uranium. Uh, that was needed to produce nukes from us. It's like it's a nation of criminals and terrorists. Uh, so, basically, when it comes to the funding of the Kennedy assassination, you have direct ties to NUMEC and Demona, and uh, the person who was in charge, really, of the closest person to the top, as far as funneling funds goes, a guy named Louis Bloomfield. Louis Bloomfield is a Canadian. Uh, but he served with Dulles in the OSS, so he was recruited by Dulles in the OSS in World War II. Um, After the war, he gets involved with a whole bunch of shady companies. Um, He gets involved with Permandex, and the Italian branch of Permandex was called Centro Mondiale Commerciale, it was CMC, and he ran CMC from Montreal. And it's fascinating, when you go through the Uh, the Clay Shaw documents and the David Ferry documents and even MK Ultra documents. There are many references to Montreal and meetings in Montreal. Uh, And then you have like the Canadian Montreal Mafia, uh, which is a whole nother story. But um, Louis Bloomfield, every time you read about Kennedy and you read about Montreal, what you're really reading about is uh, Bloomfield's connection to the assassination. Uh, Bloomfield actually, uh, has a stadium built and named after him in Tel Aviv, which I think is pretty telling, uh, considering that if you had to say who was in charge of the assassination, that role ultimately fell to Louis Bloomfield. But really that's more from a financial perspective. Where did the money come from? How did it get funneled? Who did it go to? Um, he was the man and now he's got a stadium named after him in Israel.
1: Wow. Now, this uh, this trinity of the CIA, Mossad and the mob that they had, well, probably still, of course, have so much influence and power over the running of our country and everything that's going on behind the scenes um, that, you know, they're basically created uh, the culture that we see today.
2: I would agree with you 100%. Now, my knowledge of the mob post, I'd say, really post Kennedy, but I know you know a, a, enough up to about 1968. When you get into the 70s and later, I really haven't spent any time understanding uh, how the mob works, what that relationship is. But I do know that Sicilians pretty much took back control of the mob in the 1980s from their Jewish counterparts. And the reason that they did that Um, was really more that the uh, the Jewish element that ran the mob didn't need the mob anymore. They had all gone legit by that point, or they were making billions in legit businesses. They did not have the need to uh, be gangsters anymore, right? So the Sicilians post-mid 80s, from what I've come to understand, uh, took back power. So I really don't know how much... Control or influence they have uh, in the bigger picture today. Um, I do know that they are definitely still involved in the drug trafficking that's going on. Uh, about six months ago, eight months ago, there was a Chase Bank uh, cargo ship that got busted with like 50,000 tons of cocaine. Um, and that was meant for Scarpo in New York, Scarpo Genovese family. Um, so there is definitely still some sort of relationship connection there because the CIA controls the global flow of drugs. And anyone who doesn't believe that, uh, read the books by um, Doug Valentine. Uh, Actually on my channel, uh, it's on YouTube, but I don't upload to YouTube anymore. I just can't deal with their censorship. They've given me two strikes over two parts of my Kennedy film I put up. So I only post to BitChute and LBRY now. So if you go to BitChute and look for the channel Debunking Cops, that's my main uh, show, you will find an interview with Doug Valentine where he basically explains in about an hour and a half uh, the evolution of the drug trade and what the United States government's role is in it. Um, For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Most people will acknowledge, you know, they know that in the 1960s, uh, Air America, they were shipping heroin back, stuffed in the dead bodies of, of troops, right? That was run by Ted Shackley and a whole bunch of his other guys who were connected to Watergate later on. But then people don't want to acknowledge the fact that the cia is in charge of the global drug trade they control the whole thing and it didn't start that way it started off with them being reactionary to arnold rothstein in the 1920s um, when the federal bureau of narcotics realized that half their guys in new york were on the take you know they kind of got got hip to the program and got involved working with arnold rothstein so yeah the united states controls the global flow of drugs And that's really important to understand a lot of the stuff that goes on with Kennedy. Uh, In particular, you have um, before the assassination on the 20th, you've got Rose Shermie, who is going from Florida to Dallas and she's driving with two men. Those men are Sergio Acacia Smith and Emilio Santana, two guys on the hit team, present in Dealey Plaza that day. Santana was on the roof of the book depository. Uh, where he left uh, a rifle, probably the Carcano that we all know uh, is associated with Lee Harvey Oswald, but we'll get into that later. Um, but she was on her way to Galveston to meet, um, to meet a, a sailor coming in on a ship, and he was supposed to bring in uh, seven or eight pounds of heroin, and then she was supposed to deliver that to Houston. Um, so the drug trafficking plays a major role in that. Um, in the Kennedy assassination, because a lot of the funding came from drug trafficking and skims off the top of casinos in Las Vegas. Uh, but I'm going to just talk about the Roschierme incident real quick because I don't think most people understand this or, or what happened. She was supposed to go meet a seaman. He's never identified in any of the FBI documents or anything. Any of the investigator uh, books that I have read on the assassination. But she was going to Galveston to pick up the heroine, and I determined that the sailor she was going to meet was a guy named Jerome, uh, Andrew Blackman. Now, anyone familiar with the assassination should have heard the name Andrew Blackman before he was kind of connected to David Ferry and Clay Shaw. Uh, but he was the one who was supposed to bring in the heroine. And uh, afterwards, when David Ferry supposedly went on a trip to Galveston in Houston, where he went like ice skating and duck hunting, Um, Yeah, that never happened. He never went to Texas. He hit out in Hammond, Louisiana for the weekend and uh, came back at at the time that he was prescribed to come back. He went and hit out with a guy named Thomas Compton in Hammond up at the university. Um, And the person who was at the skating rink, I'm 99% sure, was Sergio Acacia-Smith, Emilio Santana, and Andrew Blackman uh, because they had to get him back to his ship to take off from the harbor because he was uh i don't remember if it was merchant marine or what branch he was in but he had to get back to galveston so um and the vehicle that they were seen driving matches the description of the vehicle that they were in taking rose sharemate to galveston so uh just a little bit of uh you know new information that hasn't been released yet um I have a tendency to go on these big tangents when it comes to Kennedy because there's so much interconnectivity. Uh,
1: there is there's so many uh rabbit holes you can go down. Now you went over the players, you went over some of the logistics of the actual event in Dallas. Um
2: where do we go next from there? Okay. So, let's just uh, let's just jump right to the the major punchline that everyone has wanted to know for well, ever. And that is the identity of the Grassy Knoll assassin. And um, I have—I'm in the process of completing a film on this. I've released two parts; they're about an hour long each. I'm still working on the third part because it's so hard because so many things to tie up. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, unless my part three is going to be three hours unto itself, you know, I'm having a hard time narrowing it down. But the identity of the Grassy Knoll assassin has been—the uh, identification has been made. And nobody has really made this um, announcement or nobody has identified him publicly yet. However, um, the majority of what we know about the grassy knoll shooter comes from the work of Hank L. Borelli. Uh, there are two books out that everyone who is interested in the subject, they're, they're absolute must reads. Uh, one of them is called *The Terrible Mistake and it's about the murder of Frank Olson. Uh, Frank Olson this is a really, really fascinating story, and very integral to the Kennedy assassination in many ways. Uh, Frank Olson was a CIA scientist and it is believed he was working with CIA biological weapons and this was in the ni- late 1940s early 1950s by nineteen fifty three Frank Olson he goes to the CIA and he goes, "Look, i just can 't do this anymore. I, I have moral conflicts, and I want out and so they they tell him they're gonna take him to New York and he can go meet with one of the you know, one of the program guys up there and they put him up in a hotel. And well, he gets chucked out of a hotel window and splat on the concrete. And so there goes that problem. They were afraid that he would tell people what was going on. You know, once, once CIA, always CIA. There's no getting out, especially if you have secrets. Um, you are used in some capacity in one way, shape or form forever. And so he wanted out, they couldn't allow it. And so the null shooter, Uh, chucks him out of a window. And the information that was gathered on the shooter, who I'll identify here in a minute, basically was all done by Hank Alborelli. And Hank Alborelli tackled many topics in a a couple books. And he, he has a new book coming out called Coup in Dallas coming out in February, where it is almost exclusively about what happened in Dallas. He identifies the shooter. Um, and he identifies specific things that happened, um, surrounding the shooter in Dallas. And we'll get into some of the specifics on him, but I'll go ahead and I will let your audience in on it. The grassy knoll assassin and many people, well, before I get to that, many people have for years talked about Corsican hitman and French assassins and just like everything else in the Kennedy assassination, only half true. Right. So di- disinformation is often spread by telling half the story.
1: No, yeah, you're 100 percent right about, um, you know, how you will put out pieces of the story just to, to cause some confusion and further disinformation. Uh, I think they're doing that now with this uh, with some of the UFO stuff that's going on right
2: now. Uh, But that's a whole different story right there. Yeah, the UFO stuff, um, honestly, it's not really high on my list of things to tackle yet. Um, I've watched a lot of your episodes on UFO stuff, but I also know that um, there's two possibilities with UFOs. Either they're real, and the CIA in particular is, is keeping that information from us, or they are not real. And the whole UFO phenomenon has been one big psychological warfare operation against us. Um, it's, it falls into one of those two categories. Either way, the CIA is, uh, is stonewalling. So yeah.
1: They have a big hand in whatever's going on.
2: Yes. So the grassy shooter, and this is all thanks to the work of Hank Alvarelli, uh, is a guy named Jean-Pierre Lafitte. Now, Jean-Pierre Lafitte is a guy who has mysteriously evaded the radar of nearly every assassination researcher ever. (laughs) He's not listed in the Warren Commission. He's not listed in um, any of the HSCA or any of that stuff. He's not talked about in any JFK assassination researcher's books other than uh, Hank Alborelli. And in none of his works so far has he outright named Lafitte as the shooter. I think he was holding off on that for uh, more concrete evidence. And we will have all that evidence uh, in February when his book comes out. His book coming out is called Coup in Dallas, and it will be the definitive book on the grassy knoll shooter. Um, But uh, yeah, your show might actually be the first show ever that the knoll shooter is identified. So let me talk a little, let me talk about Lafitte. Um, Lafitte's a guy, when you come to understand his background and his history, it is almost like he is a work of fiction. Uh, His life was incredible, um, not necessarily in a good way, um, but it was incredible as far as how, it's so amazing, it's hard to believe. Um, So Jean-Pierre Lafitte... Uh, He's believed to have been born in Louisiana um, in 1902 or 1907. Um, When Lafitte was seven, uh, his mother, who was a madam at a brothel in Louisiana, uh, she picked up uh, and moved to France. They moved first to Paris and then to Marseille. And so here we're talking probably somewhere between 1910, 1914. Um, In the 1920s, uh, while Lafitte is still underage, she's probably a teenager at this point, his mother disappears. It is presumed that she was murdered uh, by a John or whomever, but she's out of the picture. Lafitte goes and lives with relatives in France, but he's rebellious, and you know they basically thought they were getting a, a maid, and he wasn't having it, so he dips out. Uh, he lives on the streets. Um, he is said to have been raised by the Marseille Criminal Underground. Um, so in the 1920s, definitely prior to the 1930s, um, he ends up becoming an associate of the Corsican mafia. So if you're familiar with the Kennedy assassination and you're familiar with, you know, rumors and lore of the Kennedy assassination, then you've heard about Corsican hitmen, you know, the French hitmen. People talk about, uh, Jean Suetra and people talk about Michael Mertz and all these other people uh, who were actually real people. Um, and who were in Dallas, but they were not the shooter. One thing that you'll find when you really dig deep in the FBI documents is that they were tracing known assassins um, all over the country, coming in from Mexico, coming in from Canada. Uh, They were following 20 to 30 known assassins who had all come to the country just prior to the Kennedy assassination. Um, Now, why did they do that? They... That was part of the planning. If you ask me, it was probably done by George Joannidis, who was basically in charge of the psych warfare aspect, the disinformation and rumor aspect. Um, And anybody who doesn't really understand psychological warfare um, or the use of rumor and propaganda uh, to shape mindsets, what I would highly recommend is go watch my film. Go on to LBRY or go to my website. Uh, My website is blackpropaganda.net. Um, and I have about, it's about a two and a half hour documentary that I made on the Holocaust and the use of psychological warfare uh, during World War II and the creation of psychological warfare campaigns by the OSS. Understanding psychological warfare, understanding the planting of rumors um, all as an, a, 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 on, you know, by the government, that is crucial in understanding Kennedy. So um, basically, where, where did I leave off?
1: Uh, you had you had just um, gone over the the grassy knoll identity um. right
2: so um, so Lafitte is not really – he's Corsican mafia, but when you look at the rest of his career and what he did with the rest of his life, he was a government employee he was a United States government employee from at least the 1930s um, all the way through the rest of his life um, so sometime around nineteen thirty Six or 1937, Re- Lafitte returns from France to the United States. He's got all these Corsican mafia connections, and what does he do? He goes to work for the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And in the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, who at the time is run by uh, Henry Anslinger and Malachi Harney um, and a couple of Siragusa. There's a couple of these guys who are big-time CIA who got their start in the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Um, he comes back, and it's weird depending on the circumstance. You, you read some people who talk about Lafitte, not in the terms of Kennedy, but just in general. He's mentioned a couple places. Um, some people speculate he was just an informant, but when you look at his entire life, it becomes blatantly obvious he was a payrolled employee. Um, first, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, then the FBI, then the, the uh, OSS in World War II. He was probably... Post-World War II, he was probably um, – he traveled back and forth throughout the 40s between France and the United States very often. He was part of what was called the French Connection, uh, the heroin trafficking. That was done by Henri uh, Bertincourt and uh, Francois Sparito. Those were the guys who ran the French Connection. They were like best friends with Lafitte. Lafitte was <laughs> – when you come to understand how many people he knew and how many important people he knew it's like oh my god how did we not know about this guy 30 40 years ago um so his best friends are you know french gangsters and so when he comes back to the u.s um he's working for the federal bureau of narcotics and he's basically passed off and handed around as an informant to all these other uh government agencies because he was that good he was a master infiltrator and there's almost no paper, paper trail on him anywhere. And the reason there's no paper trail on him anywhere is because everywhere he went, he assumed the identity of a real person. That's what spies do. They assume identities of real people, usually that they know or that they're connected to somehow so that the cop, when the cops go and talk to them, they're prepped and they know basically what to say. That you see in Kennedy over and over and over again. But people, another concept people really need to grasp is, is spycraft and what spies do to not be noticed, what they do to obscure investigations. Um, back in the day, you know, mobsters and whoever else, they were using the identities of dead people. But as soon as the investigator realized they were using the, you know, the identity of a dead person, the whole gig was up and everyone got busted. So by using the identity of somebody that you know, Um, it's hard to pinpoint who was actually there using that name, right? So, you know, when you talk about the French assassins, um, they say that uh, Jean Suetra and Michael Mertz, and um, there's another, there's a third alias, um, these were the original French Corsican suspects uh, for being the null shooter. Um, They basically utilized each other's names, right? So you never were really sure which one of them was there because they all generally look like The CIA has a tendency to group people together who look very similar. Um, so the, understanding that is extremely important when it comes to understanding how these people got away with certain things for so long. But uh, Lafitte, basically everywhere he went, he assumed an identity. Um, so his first, from what I can tell, his first interactions with the mafia came in 1940. So by 1940, he had already established himself reputationally as being um, a a master assassin uh, because he's recruited by Vito Genovese in 1940. And that begins his relationship with the U.S. Mafia. Um, He actually becomes a friend of Meyer Lansky. He makes it all the way. Everywhere he goes, the guy becomes uh, friends with the people at the top. It's really kind of unreal when you read about him. Um so um 1942 to 43 uh, Lafitte's working for the Federal Bureau of Narcotics and the FBI. Uh 43 to 45 uh, Lafitte is stationed by the OSS in Nazi occupied France and Austria. Now that there has to be more information on that end of his life. I'm very curious about those couple years because He ends up becoming part of Otto Scorzani's assassination network, right? So the communication, as we've been led to believe, um, uh, between Lafitte and his higher ups, um, according to Ralph Gannis, who wrote the uh, the Scorzani papers, he kind of makes it seem from Otto Scorzani's personal papers that Scorzani was directly in contact with Lafitte, and then uh, Scorzani later in life, maybe part of his deathbed confession. He says that the Knoll shooter uh, went by the name of Max, he went by the name of Zed, and he had known and worked with him since the 1940s. So I I believe that Lafitte's connection to Otto Scorzani and that entire assassination network started um, in the mid-1940s when he was under the OSS. Very interesting. Yeah, pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah, um, it is.
1: Um, now, it, before I move on to my next question, is there anything else that we should
2: know um, about Lafitte? Okay, so there are some things that, yes, absolutely, the short answer is yes. It's kind of hard to explain, and you get into a big gray area when it comes to his identities. Now, who was Lafitte? Um, in New Orleans, Uh, Lafitte was a, uh, well, let me back up just a little. Lafitte, besides being known as an amazing uh, hitman and assassin, he was also a praised master chef. Um, He actually cooked for president Johnson and lady bird Johnson um, after Johnson became president. And the food was so good that lady bird Johnson actually wrote him a letter afterwards, thanking him for cooking such a great meal. Um, his, his, Chef skills were so amazing that Clay Shaw personally hired him to work in the New Orleans trademark at their uh, main restaurant there. I think it was called the Pimsoll Club.
0: With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So Lafitte knew everybody, right? And he was extremely skilled as a chef. Now, when he gets to New Orleans, now his home base really is always New Orleans, even though he lived in New York in the 50s. He actually lived in New York at the same time as George White and Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, maybe I can come back to that, but there's a really good chance that Oswald knew Lafitte in New York when he was a child, when he was uh, you know, 14, 15 years old. Um, but we'll, we'll come back to that. But when he was in uh, New Orleans, he went by a couple aliases. Um, one of those aliases was Jack Martin. Uh, Jack Martin, anyone who knows the uh, Kennedy assassination knows that Jack Martin was a Guy Bannister's right-hand, right-hand man who was like a private investigator. Um, and when you read about the life of Jack Martin, you get a lot of weird, conflicting information. You get aliases that were definitely known to be aliases of Lafitte. And so in 1957, um, the person who we believed was Jack Martin uh, was actually institutionalized in a state hospital in louisiana for extreme exposure to lsd and so hank alberelli believes that jack martin the the original jack martin whose real name was supposedly edward suggs um, that he was actually a victim of the cia he worked for the cia but then they used him as a guinea pig Uh, to to test mind control drugs, right? Because from the late 1940s all the way through the 60s, they were trying to perfect mind control, and they thought LSD was one of the ways to do that. So you have Edward Suggs, who may or may not be his real name. Who knows? None of these names that we've come to learn might be people's real names. It's it's really kind of shocking when you understand how the depths of depravity that the CIA is willing to go to hide an identity. Um, So you have... Lafitte comes to New Orleans, which really he, that was where he was born, that's where he considered home. Um, he assumes the identity of uh, he had three or four aliases there, but one of them was Jack Martin. And when you read about the descriptions of Jack Martin being a professional informant, a professional informant, and then you know you know that Lafitte is a professional informant been doing it his whole life, the, um, the similarities become overwhelming and to, to the point that you have to acknowledge the fact that Um, Jack Martin in New Orleans was probably not Edward Suggs and it was probably Lafitte the whole time. Um, That was a crazy twist. Uh, It took me a while to kind of sort it out and wrap my head around. But remember, when you're using the alias of somebody you know, you can have two people going under the alias of Jack Martin uh, because Jack Martin was seen in a restaurant with Guy Bannister at the time of the assassination, right? Um, So if Lafitte comes to New Orleans, assumes that identity, you have the real, the real guy still kicking around somewhere. Right? So when you say when they say that Jack Martin was actually in New Orleans at the time, that might've been the original, uh, Jack, original person we know as Jack Martin, Edward Suggs, while Lafitte was in Dallas. Now, um, this, the next part that I'm going to talk about, I'm still trying to sort out and figure out, and I believe I have the general idea of who he was in Dallas. Um, but I'm not 100%, and this will probably take me forever to actually sort and figure out. But you've got a guy in Dallas named George Senator. He's referred to in much of the literature as um, Jack Ruby's uh, boyfriend, right? Because he lived with them for three weeks, the three weeks leading up to the assassination. Well, George Senator's story is kind of interesting, He is in the OSS uh, about the same time that uh, Lafitte is in the OSS, stationed in about the same places. Um, When he comes back from World War II, he uh, is in New York City at the same time Lafitte is in New York City. Uh, He worked at a couple restaurants, and then he got a uh, longstanding job working for some uh, uh, fabric manufacturer and he did sales, Um, basically he was allowed to travel to do sales for this fabric manufacturer. Traveling Salesman is uh, a common cover for Hitman, from what I found in the 50s and 60s, because you you could go around the country and you have a reason for why you're traveling, right? You're not going there to kill somebody, you're going there for whatever. So George Senator um, allegedly moves out of his apartment, um, and then he moves in with Jack Ruby around the 1st of November, 1963. I believe that if George Senator, if there was a, there is a real George Senator, if there, if the real George Senator was in Dallas, I personally believe that uh, he ended up going back to New York and Lafitte moved in with Jack Ruby under the guise of being George Senator. Now there's a lot of interesting stuff surrounding George Senator, particularly when I'm a little Well, I'm still investigating, haven't really put into context yet. You have a couple different guys who all look the same and that uh, the HSCA and like Getty images and wherever the official story was permeated um, with some very conflicting information. I have a picture of George Senator um, at court. I have a picture of George Senator on a different day at court and he looks very similar. Looks like it was him or a brother. Um, and then you have another guy named Tony Zappi. Tony Zappi was, re- was a reporter for the Dallas Morning News, and Jack Ruby had gone to the Dallas Morning News building that morning of the 22nd to meet with Tony Zoppe. Um While I was doing my research, I realized that Tony Zappi was directly connected to all of uh, uh, Jack Ruby's mob buddies. He was connected to Brecht Wall and Joe Peterson um, who put on the show Bottoms Up. That's a whole conversation separate. Um, but Tony Zappi was right in the middle of the action. And uh, then I saw an interview with Tony Zoppi, um that was taken within a couple of days of the assassination. And I swear to God, it's the same picture that's being circulated as George Senator. I've also found a picture of uh, George Senator uh, marked Earl Ruby, so there is some major major intentional obfuscation going on surrounding the identity of george senator that set off major alarm bells that combined with the timing of when he moved in to jack ruby's apartment and the timing of what he did and when he did it after the assassination he ended up going back to new york living in new york city working at a couple restaurants, right? So you got Lafitte, who's a master chef, but then George Senator goes back to New York where Lafitte used to live before going to New Orleans. And uh, he's working as, uh, in a bunch of rest- restaurants, just like Lafitte would, right? So the similarities between uh, who we're told is George Senator and Lafitte's actual life, um, they, they correspond far too many times. It also corresponds with something Ryan Dawson had told me. So Ryan Dawson... Um, told me a couple things in reference to Lafitte, but he he never identified Lafitte to me. Um, I ended up kind of getting a a strange confirmation from him of sorts in discussing Hank Alberelli's new book coming out. Um, But I did also get confirmation from another very well-known and uh, very well-read as multiple books out um, on Lafitte's identity as the shooter. So I'm not just making this up. I have confirmation from multiple uh, well-investigated sources.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you this, this information, it's such great information, you know, where are you finding some of the sources for this?
2: Well, it's hilarious, because like, I didn't stumble upon the Lafitte stuff until I kept getting so frustrated, because no matter what I did, no matter all the clues that Ryan Dawson had given me, they were all, they all turned out to be pretty bunk. They were accurate clues, but they were not clues that could help anybody find anything. Um... Well, I got so frustrated I was like, "Screw it! I'm gonna take a break." And so when I take a break from researching Kennedy, I just go research something else, right? I don't ever stop the research. So I took a break, and I wanted to research more about MK Ultra and George White. And I'm not even joking. Within 20 minutes of me deciding to take a break and look into George White, I came across the name of Lafitte, and then from that it led me to Hank Albarelli's work and the, the information on Frank Olson and um, it was by taking a break that I actually found the answer that I had been looking for. Um, that was the second time that it happened because the, uh, another time I took a break, I said, ah, screw it. Let me take a break from Kennedy. And I went back to my research on Jack Valente because Jack Valente is one of the most important people in all of American history. And most people have no idea who he is. So Jack Valente was, um, you know, he was right, uh, LBJ's right-hand man. Uh, he ended up uh, flying out on Air Force One, November 22nd. He says he was in the motorcade, but he was not in the motorcade. I found pictures of him in Daily Plaza. Um, that might go over another time. Uh, but um, basically, he's the one who sent the invitation to Kennedy to come to Dallas. He's the one who set up the Albert Thomas dinner. He's the one who set up all the arrangements for all the places Kennedy was going to go in Dallas. And it was his... Um, um, His advertising firm that ended up releasing the route of the motorcade on the 18th of November. Now, many people say how the motorcade was changed. No, it was not. The motorcade was not changed. The original route um, was released on November 18th, 1963, a couple days before the assassination, and it was Jack Valente who released the route, right? So, Jack Valente is such a crucial person in the assassination. So, I took a break from Kennedy and I'm researching Jack Valente, and I made the biggest connection. Um, I feel that I had made yet in regards to um, David Ferry's trip to Galveston, which he never made. (laughs) Um, And so he initially said that he went to an ice skating rink called the Winterland ice skating rink in Houston. They ice skated all day. um, But really what happened was um, the person who was at the ice skating rink, whose last name was Roland, which actually it's not Roland. I discovered some information on him also. Um, he says that he just sat by the phone and waited for phone calls and made phone calls all day. And then they left after about three or four hours. Well, there was something about the ice skating rink. Why did they go to that ice skating rink? Whoever it was, which I, like I said, I believe it was Sergio Acacia and Emilio Santana and Blackman at the roller skate, at the ice skating rink. Why did they go to that ice skating rink in particular? Well, I did some really heavy duty research into the origins of that building, who owned the building, who the original tenants were. And I found a couple things. The, the, um, the owners of that building at the time of the assassination were the Johnson family. Uh, most people don't realize this, but um, LBJ's father had made a ton of money and then lost a ton of money and then he made a ton of money again. But basically his uh, family was very well off. They owned a lot of real estate. And one of the things the Johnson family owned was the Winterland ice skating rink. It was originally leased to a woman named Mary Boots Roberts but Roberts was not her original name. Her original name was Girone. She was from Chicago, and she was married to a mobster up there named, uh, I don't remember his first name, but um, his last name was Girone. Well, in researching Jack Valente, he has a sister named, um, God, I can't believe I can't remember this. Um, anyway, uh, he has a sister, and her last name was Valente, but for a short time, her last name was called De Giron. So it turns out that the Winterland ice skating rink that David Ferry allegedly went to was owned by the Johnson family. It was run by Mary Boots Roberts, who was related to Jack Valente by marriage. They knew each other, right? That's not a coincidence. That was on purpose. The use of the Winterland ice skating rink was on purpose. It was somewhere they could go and they could hide out for a couple hours because they knew that he could sit by the phone and just kill time because that's exactly what they needed to have happen. So um, two of the biggest things I discovered, I discovered by taking a break. So (laughs) I guess anytime I want to figure something out, I'll just take a break and the answer will just come to me.
1: Um, No wonder that uh, the term conspiracy theory was coined after this because it is a massive conspiracy on so many levels.
2: Oh, yeah, all these people know each other. So here's another interesting one. You have um, Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, 1953, living in New York, living with his mother. Um, His uh, half brother's name is John Pick, P I C. And John Pick is actively working for Naval Intelligence at the time. He's actively working um, at the base on Long Island uh, that the OSS used to do a lot of their training, right? Many people believe that this base was where the MK Ultra Project initial experiments began. So you got his brother working in Naval Intelligence, working in New York at the same time that Lafitte and George White are there in New York, George White, after he died, they got all his memoirs and his books and his journals. Um, He had multiple meetings set up at the Museum of Natural History in New York with somebody named Lee. Now it's assumed Lee is somebody much older, but when Lee Harvey Oswald used to cut school in New York, where would he go? The Museum of Natural History, right? So there's many indicators that Lee Harvey Oswald and his family through his father or his mother were connected to George White and MK Ultra through John Pick, his half-brother. Um, so let me rewind just a little bit. Besides that, all that stuff, um, you have Oswald's mother gets divorced. She married a guy named Ekdahl, and, sh- and they got divorced in like 47 or 48. Um, Eckdahl's lawyer was a guy named, oh man, I hope I can find this, it's so important. Fred Kaur, I think that's his last name. Well, that was Ekdahl's lawyer, right? Well, that guy goes on to the time when Oswald is living in New York. He is now the head of Naval Intelligence. And by the time the assassination happens, he is um, basically in charge of the Navy. He is the secretary of the Navy, okay? Um, Besides having been Oswald's stepfather's lawyer, he is also married to the cousin of Roy Truly, who was Oswald's boss at the Texas School Book Depository. Right? So every single place you turn, you find somebody connected to somebody else that should have nothing to do with each other. It's almost like everyone involved in the assassination all knew each other, were all connected through one thing or another. Um, for those who don't understand how an assassination could go down in the Book Depository and yet nobody sees anything, um, the reality is the Book Depository, just like every other job Oswald had, whether it was Riley Coffee or whether it was uh, Jaggers, Charles Scovold, they were CIA front companies. Okay, William Shelley was um, Oswald's boss. That guy had been OSS World War II. When he comes back to the U.S., he starts working for the Book Depository, which was not at that building. But the Book Depository... All day long, every day, they were getting big boxes of shipments in and big boxes of shipments out. Um, that, it was used as a staging ground for importing drugs and weapons. That is just the reality of uh, the school book depository. People can argue this fact. People say, no, it's BS. No, it's not. I've read enough documents. I've read the backgrounds of every single person who worked at the book depository. I've read statements by people who worked at the book depository about questions they were asked during their initial interview and it, to me, there's no doubt whatsoever that the Book Depository was a, uh, a smuggling front, um, probably involved in the French connection, um, uh, shipping heroin in and out of the country throughout the 40s and 50s. Um, so I was going over Fred Korth and his, um, and his connection to Oswald. Um, seemingly, he had known Oswald and the family since the 40s. And so at different times in Oswald's life, he keeps popping up, right? And like I said, at the time of the assassination, he was the secretary of the Navy. So everybody in government knew this project was happening. Naval intelligence knew, CIA knew, FBI knew. I mean, Oswald was a common name um, between 1957 and 63. Everybody knew who Oswald was. There's multiple documents uh, from J. Edgar Hoover trying to ascertain who was using Oswald's identity um, in the U.S. when Oswald was in the Soviet Union. And that kind of brings me to another point. I think I mentioned this last time. I don't know how much detail I went into, but there were two Lee Harvey Oswalds post-1952. Starting in 1952, you got Oswald in New York, living with his mother, attending a public school up there you have records simultaneously of Lee Harvey Oswald living in New Orleans, going to Beauregard Junior High School. Um, John Armstrong did amazing, amazing work, tracking down actual people who knew each of these Oswalds. And um, when you, th- people are like, oh, two Oswalds, that's just crazy. Well, no, you have to think about the era. Um, 1952, height of the Cold War, not, not Maybe not the height, but we were in the midst of the Cold War, um, and the CIA was exploring any and all avenues to get a spy into the Soviet Union, right? And so for me, at least, once I realized all the shady stuff they did with MK Ultra and LSD and how, you know, th- they, um, they crop dusted an entire small town in the Midwest with LSD to see what happened. And the whole town went fucking crazy. Yeah. They were nuts. They killed each other. It was horrible, and this, the, the history of it has been erased from the record. All you find are little tiny. When you research George White, you find little mentions of it here and there. But when I realized the depths that they were willing to go to test drugs, you know, to try to get truth serums, all revolving around the Cold War, the idea of transplanting a Russian, a naturally Russian-speaking child, to be raised as an American.
0: Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather.
2: Now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
0: VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: To then defect back to the Soviet Union to see if they can get him into the Soviet Union. They would have been stupid not to have done stuff like that, right? So when people think there's two Oswalds and it's crazy, well, no, it's really not nearly as crazy as people think. But John Armstrong does a great job of laying out the timelines of each of these Oswalds. And uh, you have a... Let me scroll through my notes here real quick. There's one person in particular I want to mention. So Oswald in 19... 56, 57, um, he is in Atsugi, Japan, right? He's overseas he's in the Marines, documented as having been there. Um, but also, there are employment records of Lee Harvey Oswald working for a place called Fister Dental Lab in New Orleans at the exact same time. And his friend, who he worked with there, um, once Oswald was arrested, uh, he wrote to the FBI and it's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I knew Oswald. I worked with him at Fister Dental Lab. He was not a Marine, right? So there are very clear and distinct records of two different people living under the name Lee Harvey Oswald, each having uh, completely different personalities, uh, different interests, um, all going on at the same time. And this continued really up until 19... 19- Well, all the way through the assassination. In the last couple of years prior to the assassination, um, when Oswald was still in the Soviet Union, someone in Texas went to the Texas Employment Commission, registered under the name Lee Harvey Oswald, and tried to get work uh, via this Employment Commission. Well, fast forward to after the assassination, and... Uh, it's been concluded that the person who imitated Oswald at the Employment Commission was a guy named Larry Crawford. Now, I'm not going to go off on a tangent on Larry Crawford, but there is documentary evidence of at least four different people using Oswald's name and identity, and those include Saul Sage, uh, Carrie Thornley, um, and uh, a couple other, William Seymour. But there is one person who many people report as having seen with Jack Ruby or David Ferry or Clay Shaw. And I believe that that is that other Oswald, the other Oswald who did not go to the Soviet Union, the Oswald who did not speak Russian. So one of uh, Oswald's buddies in the Marines, John Armstrong went and interviewed all of his Marine friends. The amount of work John Armstrong did is crazy. Um, his book is called Harvey and Lee. Now I think I mentioned last time, I disagree with some of his conclusions. But the data and the research he did was stellar. Um, So one of Oswald's friends in the Marines was a guy named uh, Zach Stout. And I want to read this quote from John Armstrong. Fellow Marine Zach Stout befriended Oswald and the young men spent a lot of time together. I asked Zach if he ever saw Oswald study the Russian language. Zach said, most of the time we were with a mobile radar unit. Shortly after he arrived, we left Japan and traveled constantly from location to location in the South China Sea, beginning November 1957. I know Oswald didn't attend any Russian classes or read any Russian books or listen to any Russian records. He didn't have anywhere to get such materials. And if he had them, we, Stout and fellow Marines, would have known about it. So when he interviews Oswald's Marine buddies... Some of them remember Oswald as this guy who liked to drink beer and talk about girls and have a good time and do all this stuff. And then the other half remembers a guy who didn't associate with anyone much, definitely never drank, never talked about girls, um, and constantly talked about how communism was awesome, right? So you've got two groups of people in the Marines who are saying that, basically describing Oswald as two different people. And then when you look at the actual records of... Um, where Oswald um, was, meaning what what classes was what class was he in? Right, when you go through the, through the military and you're in a, in a group, you have a, assigned a class number. So there are two different sets of records for Oswald that list him in two different courses. Um, one of them says that uh, he attended uh, radar school in Biloxi, Mississippi, class three three eight three. And then other documents show him as being in class 3386, right? Um, Same thing in Atsugi, in his arrival at Atsugi. There are conflicting dates and times and classes on when Oswald was in a a particular school or station somewhere. Um, John Armstrong indicates that the FBI went to extraordinary lengths to cover this up and they destroyed records um, he has the notes that were taken in regards to um, the FBI going to Beauregard Junior High School, seizing the records, and then the records disappearing forever. But you can't disappear people's memories that easily. So Armstrong talked to people who uh, taught Oswald, who the principal was, people in the guidance counselor, right? And all of them remember Oswald a certain way. Um, and then he goes and he talks to other teachers and other people in New York and wherever else and he continually over the course of ten years that he investigates Oswald com- gets two different uh versions of who Oswald was and Then, when you compare the pictures, some of the pictures it's very obvious that um, it is not the same person um, also when Oswald came back from the Soviet Union, he was two inches shorter, about twenty pounds lighter um, it, it was it's, it's, it's to me, I am convinced hundred percent there were two Oswald's or two people living under the identity of Lee Harvey Oswald. And actually the CIA has documents calling one of them Lee Harvey Oswald and calling another person Lee Henry Oswald. I have numerous documents where they refer to him as Lee Henry Oswald. Um, Then you can go and you can look at this. There are some videos on YouTube. If you look up John Armstrong on YouTube, he's got some interviews with some of the teachers um, down in New Orleans. And they said that they always called him Harvey like that was his name they never called him lee they always called him harvey and then you you know you talk to other people it's like harvey i don't know what you're talking about he was just lee lee oswald to us right so it's a it's very clear to me at least that there were two people who were imitating oswald until this big explosion when you got like post 1960 you got a half a dozen people using oswald's identity now was all of this identity stuff done specifically for the assassination? No way. This was years before the assassination. This was done to maintain an operational cover, so that when he goes to defect, or you know, what, or when he comes back, um, if they can still use him for one thing or another. That's so, fascinating.
1: And yeah. again, I highly recommend everybody go watch the first episode that we did. Uh, you break down the, the two Oswald uh, theory uh,
2: a lot more in detail on that one as well. Now, it's a crazy theory, but then when you think about the time, you know, it was the 1950s, they needed to get spies in the Soviet Union. How could they do it? It becomes pretty obvious. And then when you look at the pictures of Marguerite Oswald, there were two Marguerite Oswalds. There were two Jack Rubies, you know, his brother, Sam. I think we talked about that last time. Um, You know, I've posted some of this information on some JFK forums and on Twitter, and I just get banned or deleted. Um, So uh, that just tells me that the vast majority of JFK researchers and the research community and people who run JFK boards, they're all fucking CIA. These guys all work for the CIA. There's no... I I solved this thing in seven months, right? I went from nothing to knowing who the null shooter was in seven months. And if I did it in seven months... What are people doing out there for 50 years?
1: I have to say, I mean, the information you presented between these last two presentations, so much of it I had never heard before. And it's so compelling and it fits in so many pieces. It puts
2: so much together. Right, right, right. And there's another thing that you have to learn how to look at documents in a certain light. Like when you go through the garrison documents, um, like I pulled this, I pulled um, the second file on Sergio Acacha Smith because the FBI file on Sergio Acacha Smith is pretty big, a couple hundred pages. Um, uh, Garrison had a file about fifty pages on him, and it, I realized something. Um, he didn't even mention Sergio Acacha Smith in the Sergio Acacha Smith file till about halfway through. He's talking about black men. He's talking about Emilio Santana. He's talking about people. You're like, why is this in the? in the Sergio Arcacha-Smith file. And then it dawned on me. Garrison, in particular, put a lot of information into certain files based on what he had determined but couldn't really outright prove, right? So the trip to Galveston is ultimately very important. I'm going to have to... That's really going to be my next subject of study is, is the entirety of the Galveston trip. But when you look at the Sergio Arcacha-Smith, like I said, half the file isn't even about him. Like, what is this guy talking about? And then when I made the connection that it was Jerome Blackman who was bringing in the heroine and that Arcacha Smith and Roe Cherami and Emilio Santana were going to meet with him to pick it up, that is when it all clicked. And all the people that Garrison had put into the Arcacha Smith file before he even mentioned Arcacha Smith were people who were um, instrumental in Arcacha Smith's dealings and who he interacted with, right? So he, Garrison grouped people together in certain files based on activity. And when I realized that, that opened up major doors for me. Now, one of the forums that I, on Twitter, just recently a day or two ago, I posted some of this stuff. And the person who was in charge of the forum, whose name I don't know, um, basically, like, yeah, this theory's been out there for years, but where's your proof? And I'm like, what? I'm like, you're talking the Kennedy assassination. There's not going to be a smoking gun that says this guy did it and signed off on by Alan Dulles. It doesn't exist. Um, I'm a former police officer. I've done thousands of investigations. I understand how to examine and look at evidence in context. And I think that greatly helped me in looking at some of these, um, some of these things that people would call speculation, but to me seem more like, duh, yeah, this is what happened. Um, so yeah, the dealing with the JFK research community has been very frustrating. I've directly emailed a bunch of people. Um, you, the only one I really respect is James Eugenio. If he doesn't know something, he says, I don't know, and doesn't really go there. Everyone else um, is kind of like whatever. Michael Collins Piper, Final Judgment is the, if you had to pick one book to read about the Kennedy assassination, it's Final Judgment. Um, now, again, some of his conclusions, I believe, are off. Um, but um, he uh, he nails it. He nails it, links everything back to Demona, everything back to Fora. He names the key people who are in Dallas. You know, so um, when you have... Uh, people who participate in JFK forums, they got 500 forum posts and they've never contributed to anything and they're skeptical of everything. They're paid. They're a disinformation agent. They're there to suppress information from getting out. So I got very frustrated because the conclusions that I draw on Kennedy, you know, I will go toe to toe and debate them with any JFK researcher who's been doing it for 50 years. And I always fall back on the point that you really can't understand Kennedy unless you understand World War II, Reinhard Galen, the Otto Scorzani Network, and everything that's happened since, NUMAC, Demona. you got to understand all this stuff in the context of why the CIA goes along with this shit. Um, Until people recognize the fact that the Mossad, the CIA, and the mafia are one organization, none of this is going to make any sense. But once you realize that, everything seems to fall into place. And ultimately, where is it leading? It's leading to a global fascist dictatorship. Um, that I believe the CIA and Israel are working towards, but that's a whole another conversation, and that it totally gets into the realm of speculation. But yeah, man. The, no, uh, go ahead. When it comes to the Kennedy assassination, though, um, you know, as a cop, I'll, I'll, I'll over, I'm going to oversimplify this, but like, if we were looking for somebody and they were, um, you know, in, in a group of people, and we knew that the guy who did it had red shoes, right? Guess what? When we find the guy with red shoes, he's guilty and he's going to jail. It was that simple. And that's how police work operates. You don't go digging, you don't, you don't have to come up with all this um, speculation on things that maybe this, maybe that. No, if you know the, 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 the guy who robbed the bank had red shoes and a wristwatch, you're gonna arrest the guy with red shoes and a wristwatch. It's that simple. And people don't apply that level of simplicity to Kennedy. They try to overcomplicate it, you know? Um but the amount of circumstantial evidence that points the finger at Israel uh, is, is, is so overwhelming. I feel like to not see it, you have to intentionally not want to see it.
1: Yeah, man, you have done some fascinating, wonderful research on this. Um, in closing, is there anything else you'd like to add about this before we close out?
2: Hmm. You know, it's really... It's really tough to say, I I need to finish my work on George Senator. I need to connect Lafitte and George Senator. Once I do that, um, that will be, for me, um, all the proof that I need that Lafitte was actually George Senator while in New York. One other thing, uh, I don't know if I talked about this last time. Did we talk about the Umbrella Man and Michael Harari? Did we talk about I, that? I also?
1: believe we did briefly. Yes.
2: Okay. Um, um, just to reiterate the umbrella Man. His name is Michael Harari. Uh, he is a uh, Mossad assassination specialist. He was Noriega's right-hand man. He was George Bush's man in Panama. Um, and he was in charge of all the cocaine that got shipped out of Panama. He was the umbrella man. The dark-skinned guy who everyone calls the Cuban is not a Cuban. He's actually Moroccan. His name is Ahmed Delimi. Um, I don't believe I have identified him anywhere else, and nobody has identified him anywhere else, so you're getting multiple firsts on the show today. Um, Ahmed Delimi was Moroccan. He was Moroccan. He was a Moroccan Jew. He was a general of the Moroccan army, and he was a, an assassination coordinator for the Mossad, Um, and he, to me, the, the, the proof for that came about, uh, in 1965, the Mossad assisted, um, Dalimi and the, the king, I think they had a king at the time, uh, assisted with the murder of a guy named Ben Barka. Ben Barka was a political, uh, opponent to the Moroccan government and the Mossad took him out. And you can read about all, there's all kinds of articles on the internet about that. And once I realized that, that, combined with a couple clues that Ryan Dawson had given me, um, it, it became brutally obvious that the uh, the Cuban in Daily Plaza was Ahmed Delany. Um, so people can see, you know, people have tried to say it's Roy Hargraves and uh, it, all kinds of just nonsense. Um, there's one guy in particular, uh, what the hell is his name? Uh, it's like a German guy, did a lot of work on the assassination. Um, I think you had him on your show once. I can't remember, but he's out there. He, he says James files was the shooter and James files was in New York at the time or Chicago. I mean like so many of these guys out there, uh, claiming to know the answer. All they're doing is, is reiterating easily debunked. Talking about Ole Demigard? Yeah. Ole Demigard. that guy. I hate that guy. That guy went on Sam Tripoli's show and just spit an hour and a half of utter nonsense. Um, Every single conclusion he drew was wrong. Every conclusion he drew um, was, had been previously debunked. Um, I mean, he still clings to the uh, Beverly Oliver as the Babushka lady. Oh, here's another thing I learned. You want the identity of the Babushka lady? Here it is. There is no Babushka lady. I went through all the Babushka lady photographs, and guess what? They're all of different women all of different women. You have at least three or four women wearing babushkas who have been credited with being the babushka lady. The reason no one can find her is because she doesn't exist. They, that is uh, just more CIA disinformation there. Um, so the, the the quest for the babushka lady can, can come to a screeching halt unless she can be in four different places at the same time because I have pictures of multiple women being identified as the babushka lady who simply is not there <laughs> um that's just more psychological warfare you know crap um no i will get back to you after i finish up my research on galveston and on george senator but i've pretty much laid out the vast majority of everything um, you know i don't know if i went over the fact that you know at least four rifles were found in daily plaza that day one on the roof of the depository one on the lawn that they traced through fingerprints um there's potential that they even found a fifth rifle um, including you know, two Mauser 7.65s um, what else is there? Additional bullets found during the autopsy, additional bullets found in the, in the front seats of the limousine I mean, I don't know how much more information needs to come out for people who still think Oswald did it to realize that Oswald didn't do it um, yeah, there's a whole lot more to this story this story will be never ending um,
1: yeah, it, it's g- great stuff, absolutely fantastic research uh, Corey, thank you so much. I'm going to leave links to your website, uh, your BitChu channel, everything in our description. And when you get more information, we're going to get you back on.
2: Awesome. Yeah, I highly recommend. Um, really, where everyone should start is with my um, documentary on the Holocaust. Um, it might uh, explode your brain to watch it. Um, when you come to the realization that Adolf Hitler never had a gas chamber, ever, um, my mind exploded uh, it took me a couple of days to really wrap my head around it, but I made a two and a half hour film on psychological warfare, and basically debunk all the gas chamber stories. Um, that you can find on blackpropaganda.net. It's also on the LBRY network. If you Google um, blackpropaganda.net on LBRY, that'll come up. But um, bit shoot, I've got the first two parts of my JFK movie. Um, I'm still working on the third part. The whole thing will be four hours plus in total by the time it's all said and done. But yep, that's, uh, that's where you can find me. Um, And check out debunking cops. Um, You know, having been a cop for almost a decade, I I now am very uh, um, anti-law enforcement. Um, They are the modern day Gestapo. And the reality is that uh, I, I, I like to debunk everything that cops come out and say, you know, so that's
1: what I do there good. Thank you so much again for coming on, Corey, and you have a great rest of your night.
2: Definitely. Uh, Thanks for having me. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?